Hi, I'm Roxanne Serta, and I'm the acquisitions editor for CNT Publishing. I've been acquiring books for nearly 20 years, and the past seven of those have been here at CNT. Through my job, I get the privilege of meeting countless designers, authors, and industry professionals who all do amazing things with their creativity. I'll be bringing some of those quilting and stitching personalities to this podcast to share their amazing stories and insider information. Download the latest episodes and get to know great crafters, learn the backstories behind events and people, and hear funny stories from people living the crafty life. All right, so thanks for coming back and listening to Behind the Scenes. Today, I'm here with Becky Goldsmith. Becky is an award-winning quilter who you may know from her travels teaching quilting both nationally and internationally. Her classes are always interesting and informative, but with an emphasis on teaching techniques that help you improve your sewing skills without making you actually crazy. So, Becky, thanks for uh, taking time to uh, talk with me today. I am very happy to. It's a lovely day. I'd, I had kind of wanted to talk to you um, in particular during this season because with so many of us stuck at home, uh, there really has been kind of a lot of resurgence and or renaissance, if you want to call it, in handwork. And thinking about it and just thinking about your work as a whole, and you've been doing this for a long time, I realized you've been doing handwork for a very Ever. long time. For a very long time. <laughs> yeah, I started quilting I have to think back. Jeff was born in 85, so I started quilting in late 85, 86. Um, and I started where everybody does as a piecer, but moved very quickly into applique. So I, I did all the beginning piecing stuff, and I taught some piecing um, once I got good enough to be a teacher. Um, but I also... Gosh, I've been hand appliquing for so long. And when Linda and I started the business, it would have been in about 94 when we started Piece of Cake. We were both more appliqueers than we were piecers. Most, almost all of our first patterns and books were on applique. I mean, there'd be the occasional piece thing thrown in because we still liked piece. But by and large, we're appliqueers. In the last few years... I've been doing more piecing, not because I don't like applique, but because, you know, it's kind of fun to do something different. And I like other kinds of quilting, and I'm good at other kinds of quilting. So, um, so I've done both. But yes, right now is a good time to do handwork because it calms the nerves, which is really important right now. <laughs> You know, yeah, that's kind of an understatement. And I know from earlier conversations with you that you aren't, you haven't just done hand applique in the past. You've done all kinds of handwork, but you're doing even a lot more now. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting when you're an author, you write books hoping that they will sell, right? <laughs> you do. And so, so while... It, piecing is always going to be the um, gorilla in the room. There's always going to be more piecing than there is handwork, although that could shift maybe a little bit right now. But even among handwork, hand applique, it takes a bigger share of the market. I accept, except I'm going to backtrack there because there's been a resurgence in English paper piecing. 
And, you know, people who are new to the quilt world, they think, oh, this is a new thing. I can remember doing this back in the 80s, right? So English paper piecing has been around a really long time. Um, it's just more modern now. I wonder if it's because of the computer. It could be. English paper piecing is fascinating if you approach it the way you do a puzzle, and especially puzzles with straight lines. And that's one of the things I did in hand sewing. So the hand sewing book that's coming out soon, if possible, I don't know when the podcast will air, but it, the hand sewing book is spring of 21. Um, mm -hmm. In there, there are eight, nine, gosh, I can't remember now. There's several English paper piece blocks. And I wanted to design blocks that were not just standard hexes or standard star shapes or standard anything. And what I came to understand during that design process was that you, anything you can draw on paper, you can make into an English paper piecing project if you keep in mind <laughs> that everything you draw, you actually have to sew, right? <laughs> It's a good thing to keep in mind, yeah. Yeah, it is. You know, I mean, you can make it fit back together because if it fit together on paper, it will fit together when you sew it. Um, that said, there's other things to know about that that I learned as I went in some cases. And that's the way, I know, I'm not sure if this is on or off topic, but for English paper piecing, for example, the way it works is you have a piece of paper that's finished size, like cardstock, and you cut your fabric with a quarter inch-ish seam allowance that you baste over the paper, and then you whip stitch it together, and, and I've got a really nice stitch for that. There's a couple of very, well, there's more than one variation on the stitch you can use to hold it together. I have a, a method I like a lot, but back to the point I was going to is that the fabric that folds over the paper occupies space and affects the size of the block. And so depending on the distribution of the seams within the block, you can end up with areas that are maybe a little higher than others, which you can almost always steam out if that's the case. But that's another thing that goes into the thought process when you're designing an English paper piece block. How is that fabric bulk in the seams going to affect the outcome? Is that on well, topic or off? <laughs> <laughs> it's always on topic because there's always something interesting to learn about with you. Um, but, so, but you're not just you. You're not just sticking to okay. I'm hand applique. Hand applique. And English you know you added piece. some English paper piecing, but you're also hand piecing, hand yeah. quilting, like. Okay, so so what, what's so way, exciting about all the handwork? Well, oh gosh, everything. Um, all right, so first, I've told you in the past that I got to be a certified yoga instructor in January of 2020. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing some more um, education. Um, it's online now, but some more education. And the class I'm currently taking is about memory maintenance and, um, you know, maintaining crispness in your head. And 
one of the things they talk about is learning to de-stress because stress is so hard on the brain. And, and in this class, they're talking about using yoga and meditative techniques to do that. And I have come to understand that hand sewing, the act of hand sewing, can be a meditative experience. Um, it downregulates, so to speak. So if you have a stressful day or stressful surroundings and you can stop and focus on what is in your hands and the act of sewing, because really, once you learn the process, you don't have to think about it. There's not so much thinking. It's mostly just the doing. And you can do that while you're visiting with people or while you're listening to TV or a podcast or a book or whatever. Um, it is calming. Plus, it's productive. So it's like it kills two birds with one stone because almost every quilter I know, um, they don't like to waste time. You know, nobody likes to waste time. The, the mere thought of sitting and doing nothing for any length of time, I, I can't even imagine. So if you've always got handwork in your, in your hands or nearby, you don't even have to do it. You know, you might be drinking wine and set the handwork down. and <laughs> Pick it back up when you set the wine down. But um, <laughs> if, you've got, if you've got handwork, it calms the mood. So, yes, in among all that stuff, I'm doing um, hand applique, English paper piecing, hand piecing, and hand quilting, all things I've done before, but the hand sewing book has all of that plus wool applique, hand applique with wool, because, <laughs> because <laughs> it was hand sewing and because it works. <laughs> well, you know, is it for everybody, like is because some people they get so worked up about things doing it right that oh. the process isn't really fun oh well yes anybody can do this because all right so for one thing when you're a beginner at anything you should not be hard on yourself right so be kind to yourself when you start something like this and also remember that the main thing is that the fabric holds together. <laughs> you, know, you don't have to have tiny, tiny little stitches for the fabric to stay together. And really, all you have to do is look at older quilts, you know, antique quilts, utility quilts, where the maker really might not have been totally skilled or on top of her game or you know, was really young or really old. I intend to be doing good work when I'm really old, but, but that's beside the <laughs> point. Um, you know, whatever it is, not every, not every wonderful quilt is exquisitely made. So when you are hand sewing and starting from scratch, shoot for it holds together. And as you gain proficiency, well, then you can start maybe obsessing about your stitches and how invisible are they or um, how small are they or are your points really perfect or are they a little bit off the mark. 
the longer I do this, the more accepting I am of off the mark. Um, and actually, the more, the more I embrace the wonky. So if you think long and hard about the quilts that you have seen in your life that are the most memorable or that are the most meaningful to you, is perfection the thing that does that for you? Because it isn't for me, you know? <laughs> That's true. It's kind of who made it and what were they thinking when they made it, really. That's right. That's right. And, and even when you look back at antique quilts, there are many fine examples of excellent, incredible workmanship. But the ones I am drawn to are the ones that are just completely wonky oh mm -hmm. wonky i you know <laughs> and i here's the thing i would love to make those myself but I, back in the day i had an art teacher when primitive quilts you know primitive that was the thing back was it the 80s late 80s maybe late mm -hmm. 80s there was that wave of primitive and i'm doing air quotes here um and i wanted to draw primitive and I, I was taking art classes, and I went to Tom Manhart. And I said, I'm having trouble with this. He said, you're never going to do primitive because you are beyond that now. That is not, you know, not who you are. So, so the, it's like even improvisational quilts. Like I do improvisational, and I might be hoping they look, that they capture a sort of, primitivism but they never will because that's not who I am there will always be a different design sensibility which is okay kind of gotten used to it so let me ask you this for somebody who's wanting to try handwork who hasn't done any before but they're kind of thinking hey this sounds good I mm -hmm. would love to have something in my hands just to kind of take my mind off things where do they start? Like, what is there a particular project or a discipline, or what do you recommend? I would say, number one, pick a project you like. You know, pick something that appeals to you. Big applique is typically easier than small applique. I mean, big pieces. Little tiny, tiny pieces, they're not always <laughs> so easy, but on the other hand, they can be done, right? I've seen too many people, I think you have maybe a project in <laughs> mind, this little tiny pieces. Well, if that's the one you want to make, just make it. If you're a beginner, it might not be perfect, but if it holds together, <laughs> then you're good. And, and, you know, watch videos, read books, take classes. Um, I know I've got a hand applique class going up soon on the Creative Spark site, and more will follow. I've got YouTube videos. I've got a book. Linda and I did the Best Ever Applique Sampler. It's a really good resource. Personally, I recommend Needle Turn Applique um, because I think it's easier. And I am personally, I prefer a turned edge on my applique rather than... Um, rather than one that's raw. And I personally am not 
ever going to do handwork with something fused because it's, I just don't like the feel of it. I don't do it, mm -hmm. but some people do, right? So you've got to pick the technique that suits your lifestyle in a pattern you like and use fabric you like for sure. Um, and my strong advice for handwork is always to wash your fabric in the washer and dry it in the dryer. And I could go on for about 20 minutes about that, but we don't want to do that here. <laughs> and I, I did. I've, I've got videos posted on YouTube about why you need to do that. I think if you watch those, you might become a fabric washer. Um, <laughs> but definitely having clean fabric in your hands while you're working is a bonus. Plus, it works better. There you go. There you um, go. And so what are they, so they, they, they need to go get some instruction somewhere. And you're, there's a lot out there. I know you've got yeah. tons of videos, books, content out there. Um, if they're only going to go get a couple of supplies, what, what do they get? Like if they, if they need like three things, what three things? There's workarounds for several of the things you could get where you wouldn't have to get something fancy. So, for example, I use a sand, sandpaper board, right, to place the fabric on, to place the template on top of, to trace around. You could use a fine grit sandpaper. You know, you could place it on a table. It's less good than a slightly larger board, but it would work. Um, I use vinyl, clear vinyl, for a placement overlay. The way it works is you trace the applique drawing on the vinyl, and then to position your pieces, you place it over the background. And there's centering lines, you know, and that sort of thing. But you place it over the background and use that to slide the applique pieces underneath. In a pinch, you know, you wouldn't have to buy special vinyl. You could cut up a shower curtain liner. It's less good, but you could do it. Um, you need needles. You need a needle that suits your hand. I, most applique needles are sharps, which is a particular class of needle. I like a small sharp. Um, depending on your size of your hands, you might want something bigger. You want a finish thread for a hand applique. I would strongly recommend cotton. You match the color of the thread to the color of the fabric you are appliquing. So the least, I mean, it costs, but the most bang for your buck thread-wise is a set of bobbins that has lots of different colors in it. Um, I do have them on my website. You might find them other places. But Superior's Masterpiece, off the pre-wound bobbin only, not Masterpiece off the cone or the spool, but only off the bobbins, is a 50-weight two-ply thread. Perfect for hand applique. There's two sets. Each set has 25 different colors in it. So that's good. You know, so thread. Got needles, some needle that works. You need thread. You need fabric, sandpaper, overlay. Doesn't hurt to have some decent scissors. And then your pattern. I think that would do it. Yeah, 
that ought to do it. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole lot more you can get, but basically needle thread pattern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, and you know, and I'm glad you mentioned thread because that, um, so this is a little bit funny, but you, you know, you came to me a while ago and you said, Hey, I'm going to do a book on thread. And I was like, just thread? And you said, yeah, no, I've been talking and it's, I want to do on thread because people get so confused. And I understood that that was a topic and everything, but until I kind of hit that aha moment when I found the thread that works best with my machine for mm -hmm. what I do most often, it made a huge impact on the process. And so I feel like, you know, it's got to be the same thing for handwork. And if somebody's contemplating like maybe hand quilting or English paper piecing, like uh, how did they figure out that aha thread well, moment? I, I did write that book, right? I wrote that book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah you let did. Me just say, <laughs> it's a pretty decent book. Um, it's called The Ultimate Thread Guide. And before it was actually Amy publisher there at CNT who we had been talking about thread she said you ought to write a book and I said seriously and she said oh yeah you should write a book so, so then I came to you and then I wrote a book I really when I started this book thought I knew a lot but then I did enough research to find out oh no I, I didn't know a lot and I think that's true for a whole lot of quilters so I intentionally when I wrote this book did not write it with my own personal biases about thread because I have them just the way everybody else does. I know what I like. I know what works for me. I know what works in the situations in my sewing world. But if you keep your mind open as you consider other fibers than cotton, there are choices. There are choices. And I, I will say that all of the manufacturers, all of the main manufacturers, they all make really good thread. So it, you are never going to find one company that's just better, right? They're all good. All of their thread off, offerings are different from each other. I mean, you might think that every 50-weight cotton thread is the same, and you would be wrong. Um, it has nothing to do with the quality. It's that most quilters think that that 50 weight, that their 50 weight thread that they happen to have in their hand, that every other 50 weight thread is going to be like it. And that is so not true because they vary by ply. There's 50 weight two ply and 50 weight three ply. There are companies, that, <laughs> I can think of two of them. So Superior's Masterpiece used to always be a 50-weight two-ply. And then they wanted it to be a little stronger, so off the cone and the spool, it is now a three-ply thread. It's a finer three-ply thread. It's excellent for piecing and quilting, machine quilting, and I use it for that. They kept the two-ply thread on the bobbin. Um, probably two reasons. One is applicators love it, but another is that a two-ply thread that's a little thinner works fine in the bobbin and you can fit more thread on the bobbin, right? Makes sense from the manufacturer's standpoint. Mettler's 50 weight thread back in the day was a three ply thread. 
So if you look, if any of you who have old spools, if you look at your Mettler older, it'll say 50 slash 3 on the spool. Mettler's now a 50 weight 2 ply thread. It's still a little heavier than, say, Aurifil's 50 weight 2 ply thread. So that weight business, it is actually related to weight, but it has zero to do with thickness or twist. So, so I explain that in the book. <laughs> There's three different systems that the companies use, and none of them use the same system across the board. And I'm pretty sure that they don't always use the same system, but in their own families of threads. Mm -hmm. it, it, it makes their head hurt if that tells you anything. <laughs> gotcha. Really, nobody, nobody likes to talk about weight. So, oh, and so all that handwork information is in the book. So, like, if somebody wanted to do hand quilting, there's a place in there they can go look up and say, these would be kind of my options. Well, yeah, in the back of the book. So, the front is all about fibers and how thread is made and why, you know, one fiber is good in one use and another fiber is good in another use. And um, then the back half of the book has the thread offerings from each manufacturer listed with um, fiber content, weight and ply where applicable, um, needle recommendations if they have them, and the recommendations for the kind of sewing you would do with it. So hand applique, machine applique, and you know, you could use some, very often the same thread can be used in multiple different ways. So, yeah. And then from there, you know, that's what the companies tell you it can be used for. But from there, you have to evaluate what works for you in your space with your machine or with your hands or with the needles you're going to use. Um, I would say don't buy deep in any thread until you have tried one spool of it for what you're going to use it for. Um, and even there, now this is funny, the color of the thread can have an impact on the way it works. I don't know. Well, I kind of know why. So like um, light thread has very little dye in it. Darker thread has more dye in it. And that dyeing process has some effect. Um, I, you know, it just does. So, and it and it can affect the thickness too. Um, I, I mean, have you ever noticed? Have you ever just kind of randomly noticed that black thread seems thicker? I don't know that it has occurred to me, <laughs> but I believe you. <laughs> well, it can. It depends on the thread, but it's um, it's really interesting. And one of the things, and, and I'm going to mention this now, I, you know, I, I like cotton thread, and I use it almost, well, pretty much all the time. And I know a lot of people like polyester thread and poly blends, and polyesters and poly blends definitely have a place in the quilt world. They do. Polyester and nylons, they're manufactured fibers. And what's beautiful about a manufactured fiber is that it can be made 
to do many things. It can be made to be shiny. It can be made to be thick. It can be made to be extraordinarily fine. It can be made to be many things. But what made me think about this right now is I was having coffee this morning with a friend who's a woodworker, and she knows a lot about all kinds of stuff. She dabbles in everything. And we were talking about some silicone, and I had noticed that I have like these silicone thimble things and how they're, you know, they got, they got sticky. It's like they got sticky. You don't think mm-hmm. about silicone getting sticky. We all know Tupperware gets sticky and different stuff. And she said, well, of course, plastics break down. I said, of course, plastics break down. And I mentioned that in the book, hoping that there can be dots connected. The thing you've got to know when you use synthetics is there's no test on how long they work. There is zero research on how long they last how long they stay good. All all that there is is anecdotal plastics break down. So, you know, personally, I would use synthetic fibers um, in garments, in projects. Um, Maybe sometimes I'd use cotton poly blends in something. I would think long and hard before I used a synthetic thread in a handwork piece. Because it's a thing you expect to last a really, really, really long time. Gotcha. I hadn't thought of that. I know. (laughs) Well, people don't. And, you know, it's not like they're bad threads. They're good threads. They're excellent for many things. And and I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a hater. I'm really not a hater. I'm just saying... You know, you gotta you gotta consider what property it is in any individual thread that you want. So, for example, if you want to sew with a shiny thread, if shine is part of what you want, well, you're going to use a polyester because that's where it is. There are other places where that would be true. If you need a particularly thick, strong thread, poly might be your choice you know, where cotton might not be. So, so you just have to, you just have to be aware of all these things. And that's what the thread book does. It pitches out there all these ideas. Um, and you get to pick because, you know, there are no quilt police. You just, you get to pick. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So I think that's probably what, you know, enough to get somebody started. It, you know, where do you start, get a couple of tools, and, you know, what kind of thread do you start out with? Because now that is, like, my big question. But talking about handwork even a little bit more, like, prior to 2020, you were actually already starting to do a lot of work online. But have the current circumstances this year changed that at all or accelerated it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It has absolutely accelerated things. Um, so I'm, I'm 64 and suitcases are heavy and I was traveling enough and it was starting to be hard on my right shoulder enough that I was thinking, you know, the end of the travel season is coming. <laughs> Truth be told, I wasn't exactly unhappy about that. I was thinking, well, you know, they tell me retirement is great. 
So I was, I was thinking about it. But then um, I, have, I have always used a video camera in class for as long as I can remember now. So I am used to the video camera technology demo stuff. And when the pandemic hit and guilds, I teach a lot at guilds, you know, we're not in person anymore. And I started having guilds say, well, could you, could you teach this online? And I thought, sure, I can do that. And pretty much exactly the same way as I would teach in person. Because when I teach in person, I make people stop and watch and listen. And then they go do the thing. So here, I, I do all those demos. And what's really nice is because they are fixed, right? They're, it's, it's right there. It's not live. So I have an opportunity to reshoot anything that isn't clear. Um, I can adjust the lighting. Everybody is going to see the video exactly the same way, rather than some people in the back of the class, some people up front, somebody left to go to the bathroom and just miss the whole thing. And I can, I can edit. It's really, it's wonderful. So the other better part, the thing I really like about this kind of teaching is that when I teach in person, it's often, say, a six-hour class. And I, I shoot for that kind of class experience when I'm videotaping a class. But when you're in person, you really do have to limit how much you can share because there's, you know, people have to go to lunch. Not every class meets for the same length. There's always somebody in the room who's running a little behind. There's some people who are faster. It just changes the whole experience. So when I videotape a class, I'm finding that I can add more detail with a better image quality. It's really, it's really nice. And so I do my best when I'm videotaping these um, demo segments to keep it between 6 and 20 minutes depends on what I'm teaching. And people can, if they're taking the online class, they can pause, they can rewind. Oh, they can, it, it's just, it's so, so nice. I had a guild. The very first class that I have gotten ready for the new teaching site is Bullseye because that was the first contract I had. I had a guild who had said, they were going to pay me money. <laughs> they wanted me to. They wanted me to teach their guild bullseye, and I did. And you know, those students were the most successful I've ever seen after a day's worth of work. It was great. I know you've used video for a long time, mm -hmm. but the classes are kind of something else again. What What was that learning curve like? Oh, you mean from my standpoint? Yeah, how to get? Oh my goodness! Well, <laughs> um, it required a new laptop. I mean, you can start imagining the dollar signs here, um, and it couldn't be just a low-end laptop. I'm on a Mac, and um, I had to get a MacBook Pro with many add-ons because of the processing speed that it takes to do the editing. Lighting needed more LED lights. I needed um, not just stands, but I got these things 
that I can put on the ceiling so I've got the lights up above rather than taking up floor space because my studio is too small to have that many lights on stands. Microphones, I have invested, oh, in three different ones, none of them cheap. But that's okay because the sound is good. Um, and then I had to get a new video camera because my older handy cam that I had been traveling with did not have an input jack for the mic. Can I tell you how annoyed I was when I realized that? So I had to upgrade the video camera, but it was good because the new camera is so much better. It required an influx of capital, which was worth it because it's not just a one-off. I'm, I'm videotaping multiple classes because now that I've done it, I really think this is, this is the way it's going to be, certainly until I hit retirement age, you know, because even now, guilds are, they're, they're getting comfortable with the technology and, and quilters in general, they're getting comfortable with the technology. And as more people take these online classes, I think they're going to see the benefit of being able to sew either in small groups or in their own space where they've got all their own stuff and their own machine and their own chairs and their own lights. I, you know, I, I think it's better. And later, when there's, when there's a vaccine, when we are all free to mingle again, whenever that is, even then, I think there's an advantage to, say, guilds or stitch groups coming together and just, you know, bringing me in virtually. It's not like I have to be there in person. They would get the Zoom me to ask questions of and the video me for the detailed classes. I bet you're a lot cheaper to feed over video, too. Oh, my goodness. You know, and it's not like I know, like, the, the cost to a guild to bring me in, you've got the airfare, which can be anywhere from 300 to $800 easy, depending on the time of year and where I'm going, plus hotel, plus food. Plus, then there's got to be, there's always that person or three in charge of you that has to pick you up and drive you. And, you know, there's all of that. and. Yeah, I mean, some people like that up to a point, but it's a job. It's a, <laughs> it's a job. Plus, there's all this stuff to haul coming and going. I mean, you know, pulling me in virtually is cheaper, and I think the actual classes are going to be better. So I'm all for it. Well, and I know for some people it really has been um a struggle just to kind of get their head around all of the, how does the technology work together? Um, you know, the software and everything. And I've been hearing anecdotally that different members of the creative community are really helping each other out, trying to oh, yeah. move that digital space. You found yeah. that to be the case then? Oh yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've done a lot of this. There are a few people who've done it more than me and I learned from them um, Holla Chatelaine early on was, she was, we visited some um, about how she does her stuff, which is really different from the way I do mine, but similar. So, yeah, yeah. And I'm happy to share with other teachers. From the taking of the class standpoint, 
you know, for, for those who are on the receiving end of the Zooming, my strongest advice is upgrade your router. I wrote a blog post. If you go to, if you go to peaceofcake.com and you click on the link to go to my blog and then type in in the search box something like router or Zoom, it'll bring up this post because I was having problems with my router months ago, well, weeks, no, months. <laughs> God, time is flying in the worst possible way. Um, so, so some time back, and I, I did a little bit of research and found out that my router that was like three years old and I thought I'd spent a lot for back then, oh, it was so not up to snuff. Um, I ended up with a low-end gaming router that has, I, I'm pulling back in the memory because I learned it, I bought it, and then I piled that information in the trash can. <laughs> um, I think it has four channels. Um, and it's got lots of little antennae that stick up. And the two, two other things I learned, okay, so you want a router with enough channels because if you have more than one person using Wi-Fi at any given time or if you have a newer device, you need something better than what you've probably got. The other thing is, two other things, if you are trying to connect to Wi-Fi from a distance to the router, and there is anything metal in the way. I mean, walls are bad, but like a refrigerator, oh, you got problems. So, <laughs> so you want your router to be high, and you want to not try to connect through a refrigerator or a freezer or something. Um, and then the other thing is, most routers have an output on the back for an Ethernet cable, and that's what I've got connected to my computer right now. Um, you can buy Ethernet cables that are short, but you can also buy them that are huge long because you can <laughs> string them like up through the wall and across your attic and down through another wall, and they make them many, many feet long. So if, if you want to zoom in your studio, and let's say it's just you and or your husband, and you can train him not to trip on it, you can string a, an Ethernet cable through your house to where you want to be, and you just have to have the correct adapter to get the Ethernet to plug into your whatever you're using. Like, perfect. Totally mm -hmm. perfect. <laughs> Excellent. Because I know that yeah, that's been a, an area of frustration for some people is not having the bandwidth to do some of the things they want to do. Well, and that's where having an online class, for me, from my perspective, so the way I run my classes for a guild, we might meet initially via Zoom, and then everybody shuts their Zoom, you know, to quiet, mute, and no, no video, and then they watch the videos. That's a whole separate thing. That is not through Zoom, because Zoom connections are too twitchy, too twitchy, and people then can watch at their own pace. So the videos are over there somewhere in another window, and then we come back um, during the day at set times to visit, and then they go back to sewing. Pretty much the way we would do in a class, right? A live class. So that's the way it works. If I'm teaching a live class, it's not like I'm actually teaching all this stuff live. I'm there and we're talking and people can ask me questions during that allotted time frame. And usually when I'm like, if I'm teaching to a guild, I give everybody my phone number 
so that we don't do questions on Zoom. They just call me or text me, send me pictures, whatever. It works real well. <laughs> awesome. And I know, too, that um, in addition to, like, the Guild classes, you're one of the first instructors that's going to have classes up on Creative Spark. Like, what, what classes? I know Bullseye's first, but you've Bullseye's got a lot in the pipeline, right? Yeah, I've got Bullseye up. And, it, and you it, tell it, people what Bullseye is. Oh, Bullseye is wonderful. It <laughs> is a foundation paper piece class that is a reproduction of an antique quilt that I saw in a book 30 years ago that took me forever, many, many, many years to finally figure out how to put it together because it's you look at it and you can't really, until you figure out how to put it together, it's a mystery. So it goes together in rings. You know, mostly you think about round piece designs as being in quadrants. This is not in quadrants. It's you, you do your foundation paper piece units, sew them side to side together into pairs and then fours and then eights and sixteens and sometimes 32s and sometimes 64s to make rings of various sizes. And then you set those together. So there's foundation paper piecing, which is a whole lot easier. I mean, it looks like a really hard quilt, but if you can follow the instructions and sew on the line, you're good to go. Um, and then there's curved piecing, and specifically set in circles, which again, they're not hard. The very smallest one, it's hard, but the, the rest of them, they're not hard. Um, so bullseye is my first class. And it's the center circle and the first two rings of the larger quilt that you can stop there and square it out and make a nine patch quilt or a pillow or whatever you want. Or you can use that as the base and then make the bigger quilt if you like. So there's bullseye. And then I've got a hand quilting class because, again, I'm, I'm sort of doing this as I've got guild contracts. And I recently taught hand quilting, so I had to have the class ready. And so it's ready. It's, it's a class that should go up pretty quick if it's not there already. And right now, in fact, when we finish this, I'm going to go back to videoing um, a class called Tile Tango. It is a hand applique class from my book, The Quilter's Practical Guide to Color. So there's a fair bit in the beginning talking about color and how you color this quilt and then right on into the techniques. And the specific hand applique techniques would be, besides the, all the prep work that goes into preparing it, um, outer points, outer curves, inner curves. But then there's, and cutaway applique. It's, it's, a, it's a way full day class, way full day. <laughs> well, at least on video, you can like stop yes. and yeah yeah i mean i can easily see where i mean you could spread this into a month-long experience if you took your time with it have you had any i, I usually ask this about in-person teaching but i feel like we haven't done that for just long enough that it's maybe mm. not applicable we like it's always fun to hear like what the craziest teaching moment ever yep. has been for you well the the one thing <laughs> The one thing that happened about a week ago, I was giving a lecture and I'm talking, I'm talking, you know, they shared the screen with me and I'm 
clicked my thing and I thought everything was great and I could see the I could see it and it was there and as it turned out they couldn't see me changing the slides and <laughs> <laughs> you know somebody finally broke in and said Becky should the should the picture be changing and I went oh and and see I was being so so polite because if I was home and the sound hadn't been on there would have been a slightly more that I would have said then oh <laughs> but no and and my husband it was funny it was an evening lecture so Steve was in the other room and he said well you sounded really calm when you were trying to figure out how to make it work and it took you know five to eight minutes um, and I I have finally figured out what it is I did that made it not work but <clears throat> it, it took a little bit to mm -hmm. sort that out but yeah then you know we completed it and, and it was good and we're new enough into zooming that those little glitches thankfully are not a game ender right they're not there it's just one of those things that happens as long as you can recover you're okay thankfully I recovered <laughs> well and so you know it is a teachable moment so now you know what to do next time to problem yeah. solve it in one minute instead of eight yes <laughs> true. Um, yeah so I know you've got the you've said that there are a lot of benefits really from both perspectives Right. Um, for all my teaching, but what do you like better? Like, if you didn't have to haul 200-pound suitcases with you. <laughs> you know, I, I really enjoy people. <laughs> you know how we all think? Maybe we all do. I don't know. I used to think that I'm kind of an introvert, and I'm finding out that really, no, maybe I'm not so much of an introvert. I'm, I work happily at home by myself, and I've done it for many years, but... Now that we're in a pandemic, I have found myself intentionally socializing more. And I live in a moderate climate, so it's really handy that, you know, we've got outside to visit in. So we keep it safe, we keep it small, we keep it ventilated. But I'm, I do like being with people. That said, that said, one of the interesting things I've noticed about Zooming with Guild is that they like to have me to teach and to share what I know and to show my quilts. But really, the relationships, they, it's the relationships between the members that are the most important, right? So it's the friends. I really enjoy just mostly sitting there with my microphone off, you know, waiting till it's my turn to do something and watching how people interact. That's, that's important, and I like that. Now, from my perspective, as far as teaching video as opposed to live, what I'm seeing is that the information that I'm sharing is more detailed and clearer because people are not in a room where they're distracted by everything else that's going on. And because when we all go to a shared room to take a class it's different for everybody i mean i no matter how many years i've done this it's there's always a certain amount of nesting that i have to do it's as bad for the students when you are in a space that is already familiar it's easier to learn so 
you know, I would hate to see the end of in-person teaching for some things, but for three-hour and six-hour classes, as you know, if really learning what you are taking the class for to learn, if that's why you're doing it, online is better. Gotcha. Well, and I agree with you. I think that even if it's online, that um, that interaction, the sense of community is really important. And there are a lot of people right now who do feel very isolated. So, like, yeah. you know, what what part do guilds and community and social media and everything, What how can you dive into that if you're kind of feeling on your own? Well... And you're creative. I mean, we're assuming everybody well, is listening. To okay, there, so there are and quilters. <laughs> let's imagine. Let's imagine you are a quilter who has always wanted to join a guild like EBHQ, the East Bay Quilters Guild. I don't know if they're doing Zoom, but if they're, if, I mean, if you imagine guilds, if you were to look for cool guilds that are meeting online. Why can you not join that guild and be a member? I mean, why not, right? I would, I would, if I was alone and isolated, I'd start looking for guilds that are meeting online. You know, maybe put the word out. Okay, now I really hate to say this because I do not like Facebook and I stay off of it as much as I can because it's become a hotbed of stuff. I, you know, but if you happen to be a Facebooker and you want to get online, you could ask your friends, you know, anybody know of, a, of an active Zoomy guild that would welcome a new member? I bet you'll find some. Because even guilds that are active right now, not every member is embracing the online part. So if you're comfortable with it, now is a good time. If you are already a member of a guild and they're not really Zooming, it may be because someone on the board that there's just nobody who's willing to take on that job. That's always a problem in a guild, right? Getting volunteers to do different things. Well, if you know how to Zoom or if you are willing to learn how to Zoom, it's not that hard. Google it. Just Google it. That's what any tech support person, if you call tech support for anything, I guarantee you, while you are talking to them, they are Googling your problem. So Google, how do, I, how do I Zoom? How do I host a Zoom meeting? And then put the word out to friends in the guild and say, we're going to try this. Join me over here. Let's do it. Start your, start your own. Shoot, for that matter, why don't you start your own stitch group? I mean, right? You could start your own stitch group. Like if you have quilting friends on Zoom, I mean, sorry, on Facebook or Instagram or wherever, put a little thing out. Maybe you start with three people. That's how a lot of guilds started back in the day. And they grew. You could start your own, what would we call it? The 2020 quilters. <laughs> <laughs> the the oh my God, 2020 quilters, you know, <laughs> and this is something, you know. Um, yeah, I think if I, was, if I was wanting to do it and nobody was doing it for me, I would take the reins and do it myself. 
And I know too, you mentioned yoga a little bit before. So I wanted to kind of come back to that a little bit because I know like the current climate between pandemic and politics, there are just, there's a lot of stress for everybody. Oh yeah. Even if you don't think you're stressed, you're stressed. Oh yeah. Um, so how have you kind of been combating all of that? Well, yoga helps. Yoga does help. And I actually, you know, I took this yoga teacher training course. It was in Costa Rica, three and a half weeks. It was so much fun. I went with a friend who was going. She intended to teach. She's a college professor, and she was going to teach a, um, a health course in addition to her math courses. And I went with her thinking, well, I'll just go because Costa Rica, January, yoga. It'll be fun. And it was so much fun. And I came home, and it turns out I have friends, friends who are seniors, who wanted to learn how to do yoga. So I started teaching chair yoga and gentle yoga and then uh, just in the living room. And then the pandemic hit and, you know, I laid back a little bit and then it got warm enough. I started, well, no, even early on, I was able to teach my daughter-in-law because we're in the same bubble. And then it got warmer and we, I now I do yoga three mornings a week with, you know, one to three people because the deck is only so big. Moving, moving lowers your stress. And for anyone who's thought about doing yoga and not tried it, it can be good for you. I want to add some caveats. Do not think of it as a competitive sport. You know, you have in your mind these ideas of people who are really limber and really mobile. That is not your average human being. And that is not what you shoot for. You find your own tolerance. If it hurts, don't do it. Don't push yourself too hard. Always start small. I do yoga for strength and balance. So I focus on poses that strengthen balance. Um, the sun salutation is a, is a wonderful, and I used to hate doing the sun salutation, but I've learned to embrace it, right? So you start standing, forward fold stretching out your your back, you know, your glutes and the back of your thighs. You come to a half lift, so your upper body is parallel with the with the ground. And then you reach down and plant your hands, step back with one foot then the other into a plank. And there are always ways you can alter that. So if your upper body, like if you can't support yourself um, in a full plank, you can go to your knees and go to tabletop. But I... I, in my classes, I do these movements slow, so you hold different positions. Upper body strength has gotten so much better. You know, my my private class, we're we're doing really good. And then you um, lower to the ground and then come up, raising your upper body to stretch your low back. Then you flip your toes, hike your hips into a downward-facing dog, stretch out again, you know, all of your back bits and then you step forward and then come back up into a standing place just that it moves every part of your body and gives you a you know even a little bit of exercise gives you a feeling of accomplishment accomplishment so in whatever way you can find some direction to do gentle movement if that's where you are in your life gentle movement you can do you can do things let's say let's say you don't stand so well 
but you can sit just fine. So if you were to sit in your chair and maybe move your hips a little forward with your feet on the floor, upper body nice and tall, make sure the crown of your head is going to the ceiling, roll your shoulders up and around and drop your drop your shoulders into a comfortable, nice posture, and then pretend like you're wearing hip huggers from back in the day and zip up those hip huggers, which tightens your low abs, and then just lift your right knee and leg off the floor a little bit, an inch or two, and place it down. And then your left leg up and down. There's lots of things you can do, and I encourage you to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you're out and about, so that's, that's kind of your de-stress. It's kind of just keep moving, get some movement in. Yeah, I do that. I, you know, I have been trying to throw in a little bit of meditation. Not my favorite thing, but it can be very helpful. And then at night, at night, I hand sew every night. Two to two and a half hours. That's where I do the bulk of all my hand sewing, whichever the handwork project is that is current. And again, it's a meditative and productive way to spend time. It's a, it's a down regulator, and, and it works. So I go to bed calm. And can I just say, do not pick up your phone. If you're down regulated and you're in a calm state, pick up a book and read a book. Do not turn on the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Do not check the news. Do not check your feed. That goes some other time of day. (laughs) You know, at some point, you're going to do a book that combines needles and yoga. Oh, yeah, big time. Actually, when, when the day comes, when we can be together again, I want to do like a retreat, a multi day retreat in a beautiful setting that's possibly a spa that combines yoga and massage, maybe a little hiking. We can dream, right? <laughs> maybe a little hiking. And, you know, handwork and some handwork, simple handwork. Um, I used to think people went on these things wanting to tackle a giant prog- project, but that's really not the case. <laughs> you really want to do something kind of chill, you know, a little chill, and then you just have a good time. Good food, little exercise. Yeah, I I think I think it's a win. I do. And I'm just really, really, I ought to be planning that now for 2022. Well, there you go. Because you need another project to put in. Because I need another pro. My God, you know, (laughs) my husband has a uh, he he's a college professor and he has banked three sabbaticals that he's going to take spring in three consecutive years once he steps down from being dean. And the first one will be spring of 22 in Hawaii. And I get, oh, wow. to, I get to go with him, of course. And I wonder, now I'm wondering. There's your retreat. That's would it be possible? Because Oh, my gosh. It, it would be extraordinarily expensive. But you only live once, you know. Mm-hmm. Some things are worth the expense. There you go. I, I think that would be worth it. So, <laughs> Well, and I think that might be another stress reliever right there is plan something for in the future. Oh, yeah. Further well, out somewhere. It doesn't even have 
to ever come true, but it's a forward-looking kind of attitude. You know, it's funny because that's, I mean, as a professional quilt teacher, I mean, I am already booking 2022. Mm -hmm. um, and I've got some for 2023 on the books. And I've gotten so used to thinking that far out that I'm stunned that people don't, you know. So, yeah, absolutely. Look ahead. Look to when, you know, 22 is probably a reasonably good time to choose for, you know, when travel would be accessible again, either inside the United States or maybe international. Um, pick a place you want to go. Start saving your pennies. Start looking online at what those places might look like. Um, start thinking about what kind of place you'd want to stay. Oh, yeah, yeah, plan that trip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it doesn't actually have to be a trip. because Not everybody's a traveler, but I think, yeah, it's a kind of an interesting thought is just to have something to look forward to because people don't realize, I think, how creative people who, you know, who make a living being creative, how many irons they have in the fire, how far out they're planning. And so it's just, we forget too, that not yeah. everybody functions that way. I know. It's a mystery, yeah. isn't it? It's, uh, you... Well, book publishing is the same way. We work so many years out. I have occasionally forgotten what year it is now. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> you know? I do that all the time. Although this year, 2020 is sticking in my memory. But... Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. This it's is funny. an anomaly. I was walking with my oldest son this morning because he and he, you know, my, not my youngest son, my older son and his wife, Lorna, Lorna, who um, is my office manager and does a whole lot of the piece of cake office stuff and shipping and all that. Um, and our grandkids, they all live here in Sherman. So after my morning walk with friends, the real morning walk, the almost three miler, I have a short walk with Christopher. And his birthday's coming right up. And you know, it's like it hit me out of the blue. It's birthday season again, because we have September, October, November, December, January, February birthdays in my family. <laughs> like in two weeks, it's birthday season. I haven't shopped, you know, not really. Mm -hmm. Christopher's one of them. He's the second. He's, he's October 1st. And I had to ask him how old he was going to be this year because I couldn't remember. <laughs> You know, I can't remember which one this is for me. So we're all in that boat this year. You just yeah. go out the window. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, I, it's easy to forget where and when we are. Well, and, and so speaking of um, looking forward mm -hmm. is what, so people who are listening who they maybe want to take a class, check out what else you've got going like, what's the best way, what's coming up for you, and what's the best way for them to keep up with what's coming up? Well, okay. So, on my website, on my website, if you go to peaceocake.com, there are links on, under classes, um, and one of them is my schedule. And you know when I was talking about joining guilds? I don't know what different guilds charge, but I am teaching online for a variety of guilds. And most of the Zoomy kinds of guilds, um, they're like quick, right? Somebody says, can you teach a meeting? Can you give a meeting like this month or next month? So I've got a lot coming right up, and I'm hoping more will follow as more guilds start booking out. 
Um, and then what else is coming? I don't typically put up which books are coming soon because there's not a good way, I don't think, we just switched websites, for us to do pre-sales. If we can do that, I'll do that because um, Sizzle should be releasing any minute now. So that's a book that was, it started as a block of the month on the quilt show. So it was all online at first and then that ended and now it gets to be a book and it's really going to be a great book. There's two colorways and again, it's foundation paper piecing and some set in circle sewing a little bit. Um, it's really fun. It's really a fun book. So that's coming up anytime. So fall of 20 and then spring of 21, there's the hand sewing book, which is a really good book. It's really comprehensive. I'm extraordinarily proud of that book. Um, and then after that, I'm working on the secret project now that is Christmassy and wool and hand applique. And that will come up first as a class on Creative Spark. And then it will be joined in the future by a book and then beyond that, I haven't thought what's next because I'm in the middle of doing all that. But something will come after that. I don't know what. Yeah, and so if they could just keep up on your website and everything, then... It's, it's as they, there and on the blog. Although I don't write as many blog posts as I used to. And it's not because I don't like writing blog posts. It's that I tend to be single-minded. And right now... I have so much work. If there were two of me, that other one could be writing blog posts and doing social media <laughs> and doing all that stuff. But there's one of me and I can't, I can't, I can't, I just can't do more than one focused thing at a time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so. All right. Well, speaking of being focused, I know you have videos that you need to jump back over to. Oh, yeah. Um, but So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk and, and kind of just share thoughts about everything. Chaos. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And it's always fun. And I never know which direction we're going to go, which is why it's always fun. So well, I really appreciate you. it. <laughs> I, I appreciate you inviting me to be on the on the podcast. It's fun. And I do enjoy seeing you and visiting with you every time. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. This is Roxanne Serta. Thanks for listening to Behind the Scenes. Want to know more about our outstanding group of authors and their books? Visit us online at CT Publishing on Instagram, Twitter, our CNT Publishing channel on YouTube, or on our website at ctpub.com.